Good morning. My name is Brad DeLong, and this is my morning coffee. Last night at Eli's Mile High Club, there were demands for the audience that I restart my podcast series of low a decade ago, colon, my morning coffee, and so I am obliging. Right now, I want to violate my standard rule of never picking a fight with Paul Krugman and to ask the question, globalization, what did Paul Krugman miss? Paul, you see, has a very nice short framework for thinking about globalization in the world called Globalization, What Did We Miss? Paul's piece is excellently written. Paul's piece contains a number of important insights, but... I have a number of complaints. I will make those complaints stridently. First, Paul Krugman claims that, in Heckscher Olin models at least, from the early 1970s to the mid-1990s, international trade put only a small amount of downward pressure on the wages of American, quote, unskilled and, quote, semi-skilled workers. I think that from the early 1970s to the mid-1990s, international trade at least working through the Heckscher Olin channels, put less than zero downward pressure on the wages of unskilled and semi-skilled workers in America, that it was a force for increasing rather than decreasing their wages. Why? Well, comma, at least as I see it, it is important to note that, quote, emerging markets, unquote, and global north, unquote, are not static categories. Japan, Spain, Italy, Ireland... They were all low-wage countries in the 1970s. From the early 1970s to the mid-1990s, the relative wage levels of the then-current sources of America's manufacturing imports, those relative wage levels were rising more rapidly than new low-wage sources of manufacturing imports were being added. Thus, the typical American manufacturing worker faced less low-wage competition from imports in the mid-1990s than they had faced in the early 1970s. Now, manufacturing workers did come under pressure from the 1970s to the 1990s, but it was not from increased low-wage competition from abroad. Rather, it was from, one, fiscal policy failures that produced the Reagan, and then in the 2000s, the Bush II deficits, as Republican governance redirected dollars earned by foreigners from buying our exports to buying our bonds, Two, managerial failures in Detroit and elsewhere in the U.S. and successes abroad. And three, technological failures in Pittsburgh and elsewhere in the United States and successes abroad. Now, as I see it, we could have protected Detroit and Pittsburgh from the consequences of their managerial and technological failings, but that would have been at immense cost for the country, a very unfavorable benefit-cost trade-off a sacrifice of investment for the preservation of our then-current industrial structure. And as I see it, we certainly not should have elected Republicans and given them the keys to the economic policy car. That rarely works. It always winds up wrapped around some tree somewhere with somebody stammering explanations. But given that we did give the Republicans the keys and given that Detroit's and Pittsburgh's managerial and technological failings were there, globalization from the early 1970s to the mid-1990s was, on balance, a positive thing, and a very positive thing. 
It provided us with enormous benefits in every possible scenario. And in the unfortunate scenario, we were dwelt by the Reagan Democrats, the big three auto executives of Detroit, and those to whom we gave the keys to the economic policy car. Globalization greatly reduced the damage. So that's my first point, um, that Paul Krugman gets the effect of globalization from the 70s to the 90s wrong in not noting that it was a positive benefit for America's unskilled and semi-skilled workers. Second, um, Paul talks about hyper-globalization, that process from the mid-1990s to the financial crisis that was a big deal. Paul writes, quote, this huge surge Containerization was not new, but took time for business to realize the possibilities, plus a broad move toward outward-looking policies, with China making a dramatic shift from central planning, unquote. Um, yes, that's good, that's important, but I disagree when Paul writes that, quote, hyperglobalization, unquote, was in some set a threat to blue-collar Americans' economic and social position. Now, it's clear, um, or at least as Paul writes, it's clear that the impact of developing country exports grew much more from 1995 to 2010 than the 90s consensus imagined possible, unquote. That's certainly true. But then Paul goes on to say that, quote, that may be one reason concerns about globalization made a comeback. Why? for reasons Paul recognizes and summarizes, referring to, quote, a fairly novel form of trade, breaking up value chains, moving labor-intensive parts of the production process overseas, the factor content of north-south trade hasn't really nearly as large as the volume, unquote. But let's unpack this. In an age of widely separated intercontinental value chains, we can see that there are actually more types of, quote, blue-collar, unquote, manufacturing jobs than the skilled craft, semi-skilled assembly line, and unskilled traditional trio that is the standard classification. Most importantly, we can see that the blue-collar jobs that are traditionally called, quote, semi-skilled assembly line, unquote, are actually divided into two. The first are those semi-skilled or assembly line jobs that require relatively literate workers with substantial experience and tacit knowledge of the production process who plug into sophisticated and highly productive divisions of labor that are supported by very productive communities of engineering practice. The second of those jobs traditionally called, quote, semi-skilled assembly line, end quote, are those jobs that plug into those divisions of labor and are supported by those communities of engineering practice, but that actually do not require relative literacy or involve a great deal of tacit knowledge or experience. Jobs that are doable by virtually everybody with the standard mental structure and eye-brain hand loop of the East African Plains ape. Now, we call these jobs, quote, unskilled, unquote, even though they are not. They involve tasks that are currently regarded as very high AI problems. It's a sophisticated conceptual problem to solve to do these. Now, before the coming of hyperglobalization of intercontinental global value chains, 
The distinction between these two types of semi-skilled manufacturing jobs was of relatively little importance. Both paid relatively well, for jobs requiring little formal education, that is. Both benefited from the requirement that workers be located near to engineers, and also close to marketers and executives. Both benefited from the participation of the workers in highly productive production processes, and so both shared in the rents produced therein. But the truly unskilled portion, even if they were called semi-skilled, they were not truly good jobs. They were boring, repetitive, and not very productive. An economy that could figure a way to offshore those jobs would find it had a global competitive advantage. That would strengthen its truly valuable communities of engineering practice, that would improve its ability to employ relatively literate workers with valuable experience and tacit knowledge in places where they could add enormous value. Now, this was brought home to me most strongly in the years after the NAFTA debate. Opponents of NAFTA, whether Ross Perot or Thea Lee or Harley Shaken, had claimed it would be very damaging to the American automobile industry. And they were wrong. And it was not just the firm's executives, shareholders, and marketers who were better off as a result of NAFTA than they would have been otherwise. The blue-collar workers with tacit knowledge and experience were better off as well. They were part of a value chain, value chains that allowed significant competitive advantages and gave them a leg up versus Japanese and German competition. The truly unskilled portion of those jobs some perhaps we should call polyester uniform jobs, they wound up not having jobs in the auto industry. Those jobs had moved to Mexico. But the jobs they got outside of it were about as good from the perspective of how productive they were in those jobs. And their lower wages came from reduced rents on the one hand, and from the government's decision to no longer worry about income distribution and leave America's working poor to drift slowly, slowly in the wind on the other. And not the entire government's decision, just the Republicans in government's decision. Um, thus, as I see it, the coming of hyperglobalization in fact strengthened the opportunity for New York's workers without formal education to find jobs where their skills, experience, and tacit knowledge could be, could be deployed in ways that were highly productive. Now, what hyperglobalization did do was it provided the top 1% and the top 0.1% and the top 0.01% with another lever they could use to break apart the Dunlopian Labor Relations Order to break the Treaty of Detroit, to redistribute the shared joint product from highly productive mass production backed by valuable communities of engineering practice, to redistribute that shared joint product upward in the income distribution. But there were many such levers in the U.S. from the 1970s today, and hyperglobalization was, as I see it, one of the weakest and the shortest of them, and our decision to let people use those levers was itself a choice. Remember to whom we gave the keys to the economic policy car. This was one of the trees they wrapped it around. Now, globalization gets blamed, but globalization gets blamed not because it was an important driver of the process, but because it allows one to blame others. Brown people, yellow people, 
and, of course, the rootless cosmopolites. One cannot construct a domestic political movement by blaming Americans. Whether the upper middle and upper classes, on the one hand, um, for taking money and bread out of the mouths of the workers of the Midwest, um, or the workers of the South, of the right-to-work states, for taking the mouth, bread out of the mouths of the workers of the Midwest. Instead, you build a nationally attractive political movement by blaming foreigners, and hyper-globalization gives you the chance. Um, so that's one of the 1970s to the 90s. That's two, hyper-globalization. Um, third, let's talk about the China shock. I quarrel with Paul Krugman's assessment of the China shock. I quarrel with Otter Dornan Hansen's assessment of the China shock. Paul writes, quote, While trade deficits explain only a small part of the long-term shift towards services, soaring imports did impose a significant shock on some U.S. workers. Fights over tariffs look very much as if they come out of a specific factors world. This is where the now-famous analysis of the China shock by Otto Dorn and Hansen comes in. What they mainly did was to shift focus from broad questions of income distribution to the effects of rapid import growth on local labor markets, showing these effects were huge and persistent. This represented a new and important insight. Unquote. Put me down as believing that as I see it, Otter, Dorn, and Hansen's focus on the stable absolute number of U.S. manufacturing jobs before the China shock of the 2000s and its drop as a result of the China shock is substantially misleading. One might legitimately work at the share of the workforce who have and the share of those entering the workforce who get, quote, good blue-collar, unquote, jobs, but in that we see not stability but rather a smooth decline in the proportion. One might legitimately look at individual towns, cities, and regions, in which case one sees patterns of regional industrial growth and collapse. The defense spending cycles, the collapse of New England leather and textiles, the rise of the Carolinas, the shift out of the Midwest to the falsely called right-to-work states, plus the general desire of people, at least after air conditioning comes in, to live in places where the winters are not so dire. It is not a new insight that such shocks to regional labor markets had effects that were large and persistent. Anybody who had ever driven through Lowell or Fall River, Massachusetts, knew that before Paul Krugman had published his first paper. Anyone who noted that there had been no construction in Boston's central business district between 1929 and 58 knew that. And yes, it is a very important insight. Um, yes. The reduction in the share of the U.S. workforce in semi-skilled blue-collar jobs that require substantial tacit knowledge, experience, and literacy, that has been a big deal. But the bulk of that is overwhelming bulk is due to technology, not trade. Yes, there has been an additional reduction beyond technology, but the bulk of that has been a second-best compensation and adjustment for the disastrous Republican habit of running large budget deficits at full employment. Yes, the U.S. government should have done more to support communities and workers who found themselves under the hammer. But for that, blame the legacy influence of social Darwinism on American politics. The U.S. government did little for Lowell or Fall River back in the day, and complaints about the failure to properly manage a process that is globally overwhelmingly positive sum, 
Those complaints should be mailed to the address of the Reagan and Trump Democrats of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. They should not be mailed to Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, and they should especially not be mailed to poorer brown and yellow people in Mexico and China. Um, Moreover, from the perspective of the country as a whole, the China shock was not a huge deal for blue-collar workers. Yes, people are no longer buying as many of the products of American factories as Chinese imports flood in. But those selling the imports are turning around and spend their dollars investing in America, financing government purchases, infrastructure, some corporate investment, and housing. The circuit circular flow will win out. The dollars are of no use outside the U.S., and so the dollar flow has to go somewhere. And as long as the Federal Reserve does its job and makes Say's law roughly true in practice, it is a redistribution of demand for labor and not a fall in the demand for labor, and a redistribution across sectors of the demand for labor and not a fall in the demand for blue-collar labor. Here is the kicker as I see it. The types of people and the types of jobs funded by the imports of capital associated with the China shock look very much like the types of people and the types of jobs displaced from the tradable manufacturing sector. And for a good many of local labor markets, the effects are about the same. For the country as a whole, the pluses and minuses are about the same. Yes, there are some local labor markets that got a substantial and persistent negative shock to manufacturing that was not substantially cushioned by a boost to construction. Yes, there are other local labor markets that got a substantial and persistent positive shock to construction. But on the level of the country as a whole, the factor of production, that is semi-skilled blue-collar labor, does not look to me to have been adversely affected. And the speed and the magnitude of the local economic distress caused is not out of line with what we'd expect from regional, from past patterns of regional decline and advance. Until 2008. And now we get to my fourth quarrel with Paul Krugman. The play is Hamlet, but where is the Prince of Denmark? Paul's piece about globalization, What Did We Miss?, contains zero references to recession, finance, financial crisis, or hysteresis. Yet, at least as I see it, the key thing we missed about globalization was not its impact on factor prices in some hexer olin model, or on shared rents in some specific factor models, but rather that when a big financial crisis and depression came, globalization and poor people elsewhere would provide an excuse to distract blame from malefactors and malefacting sources, structural causes. There was a lot of blame. Blame financiers who had no control over their derivatives books because they failed to manage. Blame financiers who had no control over their derivatives books but who thought, like Charlie Prince of Citigroup, you have to keep dancing as long as the music is playing. Blame Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan in his deregulatory moods. Blame Treasury Secretary John Snow. They were at the hands of the agencies responsible for controlling systemic risk when the vulnerabilities emerge. And they did not do so. Did not control it, that is. 
Blame Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke. Blame Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson. They were at the heads of the agencies responsible for controlling systemic risk after the vulnerabilities emerged while there was still time to shore up the system, and they did not shore up the system. The Prince of Denmark here is the Greenspan snow shock, not the China shock. What we missed about globalization was not its impact on blue-collar, semi-skilled workers with experience and tacit knowledge and their communities, but how the shocks of globalization and of the financial crisis would interact with attempts to shift responsibility and blame off of the appropriate actors. And then, of course, there is 2010. Barack Obama's declaration in his State of the Union address that the time for bold action to boost employment was over. Quote, We took office amidst a crisis, and our efforts to prevent a second generation have added another $1 trillion to our national debt. Families across the country are tightening their belts... And like the, the and but we need to repay the one trillion it took to rescue the economy last year. Like any cash-strapped family, we will work within a budget to invest in what we need, and sacrifice what we don't. And if I have to enforce this discipline by veto, I will. Unquote. I have never found anybody working in economic policy in the Obama administration who thought this larger shift was a good idea. Some have admitted to believing it was a meaningless rhetorical nothing-burger. After all, it accepted spending related to our national security, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and you can do anything macroeconomic you want on the spending side in those categories. They were wrong. Others were strongly opposed. They were overridden. Others say that they were quiet, but were certainly not boosters, but they did not attempt at all to stand in the way. And indeed, it wasn't a good idea. If the Greenspan snow shock is the Prince of Denmark in this play, the idea that the crisis was over and the need for stimulative policy at an end as of early 2010, call it the Obama-Geithner shock, perhaps, that's King Claudius, or at least Queen Gertrude here. And this gets me to my fifth quarrel with Paul Krugman here. As I see it, the most important thing we missed about globalization was how much it required support from stable and continuous full employment. That, I think, ought to have been the focus of his talk to the IMF that he gave under the title of Globalization, What Did We Miss? That's what he really ought to have been talking about. After all, it is now 81 years since John Maynard Keynes published this, quote, while the enlargement of the functions of government involved in the task of adjusting to one another the propensity to consume and the inducement to invest would seem to a 19th century publicist or to a contemporary American financier to be a terrific encroachment on individualism, I defend it as the only practicable means of avoiding the destruction of existing economic forms in their entirety and as the condition of the successful functioning of individual initiative. If effective demand is deficient, the public scandal of wasted resources, the individual enterpriser is operating with the odds loaded against him, the game of hazard which he plays is furnished with many zeros, the authoritarian state systems seem to solve the problem of unemployment at the expense of efficiency and of freedom, 
It is certain the world will not much longer tolerate the unemployment, which, apart from brief intervals of excitement, is associated and, in my opinion, inevitably associated with present-day capitalistic individualism. But it may be possible by a right analysis of the problem to cure the disease while preserving efficiency and freedom, unquote. True, now as much forever. Thank you very much for listening.